I want to start this morning with something I think has been already said twice during our series from James, uh, and I know it might disturb some of you to have heard it the first time, uh, but uh, to hear it three times uh, might be overkill. But I think I said it, and I believe Paul said it. There is a nursery rhyme that's very popular that is a lie. And that's the one that says, sticks and stones may break my bones. And I'm going to paraphrase it this morning. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names and gossip and slander and put-downs and ugly talk and back-talking and evil speech can't hurt me. And that's a lie. Because, as we've mentioned those last two times we talked about this nursery rhyme, Bones heal, wounds heal, but the damage from hurtful words can last a real long time, sometimes a lifetime. And everyone in this room knows that because there's not one person in this room who's not experienced an attack of hurtful words. Winston Churchill, who was the popular prime minister of the United Kingdom in the 40s and in the 50s during World War Two, uh, in his latter years was at an official ceremony. Uh, and two gentlemen were sitting a few rows behind him and noticed that Churchill was sitting in front of them. And the one whispered to the other, they say that Churchill has gotten quite senile. And the other said, yeah, I've heard that. They say that he's doing more damage for the UK than he is good. And the other one said, yes, they say that he should step aside and let younger, more dynamic people run the government. Winston Churchill turned around and in a loud voice said to them, and they say that he's quite deaf. (laughs) Now, we would expect that people who put themselves into the realm of politics would experience a lot of verbal attacks. And if we were willing to be honest, we probably would maybe secretly admit that politicians are fair game. As to our teachers of our children, certain business owners, uh, coaches and players of our favorite sports teams that aren't performing like we think they should. But the reality is all of us have been the target, and have also targeted others with words that are meant to belittle and to hurt. And you know what the sad reality is? In far too many cases, it's just as true within the church. When it comes to verbal warfare, we would expect, and we all get it, the world is a painful place to live. The church can just be as painful. Now, I was thinking about it this morning. For over 40 years now, I've had the privilege of being, and I consider it a privilege, to have been in church leadership, church ministry, uh, on staff at two churches now. And I've been asked numerous times, how do you do it? How do you handle some of the things that come back your way? And I often joke, and I think it's partly true, Internally, but physically, it is true. God blessed me with big shoulders. 
And I've been able to deflect a lot of things that have been said towards me with big shoulders. But if I'm honest, especially in the last decade or so, there's been times I've confided with those closest to me, my shoulders aren't big enough. It's not unusual for a young pastor to be told, make sure you grow thick skin. It's said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. That shouldn't be the case. There are people who are hurting, who go to a church, belong to a community of faith, and they would tell you that the last place that they want to confess or confide or to share their hurt, their baggage, their weaknesses, their faults, is the church because they're afraid of what people might say. And we would expect this situation outside of the walls of a church. I guess in some ways we just have to accept the fact that the the world is a a hurtful place and there's verbal warfare going on all the time and, and, and we just have to learn to live with some of the things that are said to us. But it shouldn't be the case in the church. There shouldn't be gossip. There shouldn't be slander. There shouldn't be criticism. There shouldn't be insult. There shouldn't be backbiting, bad-mouthing, putting down. Not today and, and not when James wrote the letter that we've been studying for the last several months. And yet here it is. And yet there it was in James' day. And we've talked about it. But we can't really be sure why there was this sinful talk going on. This hurtful speech. We can surmise from what we've seen so far what some of the issues might have been. But we can certainly see the damage. We we can see the the havoc that has been wreaked uh, on James's community of faith. We've talked about it. Quarreling and fighting. Bitterness, jealousy, envy. The list goes on and on and on. And James would say to us today, just like he said to his people in his day, enough is enough. The church is no place for hurtful talk. In our passage this morning, it's only two verses. James is going to explain why. Evil speech has no place in the life of the Christian and in the life of the community of faith. I'm going to ask you to turn uh, in your Bible. Doug, do you have the screen? I guess Diane. So there's verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. The Pew Bible, page 979. we, We talked already about hurtful words, and we've had a scripture reading about judging, and yet I really feel God is pushing me to say something this morning that's a little bit of an aside. And so is it okay I say this out of love? As an elders team, we have been very, very intentional. I hope you notice it, that when we do sermon series, when we preach, we take a text of scripture 
and we expound upon it. We, we, we try to help you to understand what the verses mean, what it meant to the original audience, how it applied to them, what it means to us thousands of years later, and how it can apply to us. I haven't spoken for the last two or three weeks. I've been sitting in the pew, and, and one thing I've observed, and I realize I'm a dinosaur. I work in the printing industry, so I will, I will preface everything I say partly with that. But I know, and I realize that there's a Bible app. I don't like Bible apps so much other than if I'm in the middle of nowhere and I know it's in my phone. I, I'm tempted to look at Facebook and my emails if I got the Bible app open and I'm not fully engaged with who's speaking. So I, I, I like a copy of God's Word. Now, I truly believe we're going to get to heaven and we're all going to get a new copy you know, inscribed by Peter as we go through the pearly gates. I, I, I'm just jesting. But what I've observed the last two or three weeks is that way too many people don't have their Bible app open. They're not using a pew Bible. They didn't bring a Bible from home. And if you don't have a Bible, this is not uh, meant to chastise you. There's a Bible in front of you. Take it. It's yours. If I get in trouble, deacons, I'll pay for it. Take a Bible if you don't have a copy. But when, and there's Bibles out in, in the foyer. There's Bibles everywhere. My wife is bugging me to clean up my office at home. I've got a dozen Bibles. If you need a Bible, I will get you a Bible. But my point is, is I've been watching over the last couple of weeks, and whether it's Brian or Paul or, or Al's been up here speaking, and we've, they've been referring to a verse. And maybe I'm totally wrong, and you guys have just memorized the passage. So I apologize if you've memorized the passage. But I'm trying to follow along and, and with what's being said. And some of you are just, listen, I, I don't know how you do it. So this is not a judgment. This is not a chastisement. It's just an encouragement. Get a copy of God's Word. Open up your Bible app. Page 979 in the Pew Bible. Open the Bible. Follow along. And I even got it behind me so that you could follow along. One of the most encouraging conversations I've had recently was from a couple in our church who listened to what somebody spoke about, went home and opened up their Bible and looked at it to make sure that what was said was right. And they made the comment, they were wondering if what was said was, was actually accurate. It's obvious, not the encouragement that something was said that wasn't accurate, but the encouragement. Someone actually went home and, and took their Bible, and as the New Testament calls it, being a good Berean. They, they studied and looked at what was said, and they wanted to understand it for themselves. And that's, if you look at the statements of Auburn Bible Chapel, this, this is our authority. Anything that's said that you can't find backing here shouldn't be said. And if you hear that from the pulpit, then shame on us. We want to preach God's word. This is the authority for, for our life. And so I just want you to get used to looking at it and, and, and listening along. So sorry for that long aside, which was way longer than I thought it would be. Anyways, let's read our passage. I've now closed my Bible, so I have to turn to it. James 4, verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Our passage begins with a command. James says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, the NIV, which is what we're reading from, is 
One of the few English translations that uses the word slander. Almost every other translation says, do not speak evil against one another. And so I like that little phrase. And so when you hear me say, speak evil or evil speech, I'm talking about the whole umbrella. Gossip, slander, putting down someone, uh, bad talking someone, all those ways that we can describe it. That is what James refers to as speaking evil or evil speech. And so the command is, do not speak evil against one another. It literally means to talk against or to talk down. That's, that's the command. Don't do that. A- any speech that is a put down or you're running down somebody else is what James is prohibiting here. And so that means all those things that we just listed, or I just listed, and I'll stop listing them because I think you get the idea. That's what the prohibition is. And James in the passage gives us a very specific qualifier. He says, Christian, do not speak evil against your brother or sister. And as true as it may be that you don't want to speak evil against your sibling, what James is talking about here is someone who shares the same faith that you do in Jesus Christ. Do not speak evil against a fellow Christian. Now, that doesn't mean as a Christian that it's fair game to go outside the church and speak evil against everyone that isn't a Christian. But for James' purposes, the command is do not speak evil against one another. And so, what does this prohibition concerning evil speech look like? And I came across this list, and it's well, way better than I would put together, so I'm just going to read it. What does is, what is this uh, prohibition look like within the community of faith? We must not spread rumors. We must not rejoice when another Christian falls into sin. We must not rejoice in exposing other Christians' weaknesses. We must not share things that are better left unsaid. We must not lie to prove our point. We must not exaggerate the faults of others. We must not tell the truth with the sole purpose of injuring others. Rather, we must assume the best, not the worst. We must be silent when we cannot be kind. I think of that list and I think of this prohibition. I think of this command and and a couple of problems come to my mind right away. And the first problem is this. We're all guilty of those things. Like we've all done one of those things. And I get it. We're human and we love to talk about other people. We like to evaluate others. What they wear where they live, what their family situation is like, what's their job, what's their financial situation, what's the baggage that they carry, what troubles have they had. And what better place to do that than in a place like this? Because we're surrounded by people from all sorts of different walks of life. It doesn't take long for us to take a look even around this congregation here, 
and land on someone who irritates us. Someone that bugs us. Especially when controversy comes. Especially when decisions have been made that we don't agree with. How easy it is to throw out insults, to criticize, to to impute wrong motives on those who don't agree with our opinions. That's the first problem. But then there's a second problem. And I believe Paul spoke about this. I might be wrong, but I'll bring it up again. It's the tendency, the temptation for us as Christians to downplay the severity of the sins of the tongue. Like, right, I would rather be known as a gossiper or a slanderer than I would as an adulterer or a murderer. Like, I, I think we get that, right? As William Barclay says, there's few sins that are so thoroughly condemned in Scripture as the sins of the tongue. Evil speech, as James defines it. And I challenge you, now that you have been encouraged to pick up your scripture, go cover to cover and try to find anything good that's said about the sins of the tongue. You won't find any. It's thoroughly condemned. You go to Romans 1 and you read this list of people who've turned their back on God and and Paul just lists all these things that they've turned to. And before he calls them haters of God, he calls them gossipers and slanderers. You go through scripture and you can get a real list of bad company of those who, and and, and the actual words are the same Greek words that James uses, spoke against different people spoke against God. Throughout Scripture, you see this phrase that's used, and and when we participate in evil speech, we, we make ourselves part of that group that we don't want anything to do with. And yet it's easy. And we've all done it. And to speak hurtful words against others to participate in evil speech sometimes temporarily gives us an advantage because we can really put that person down with carefully worded insults and criticisms. And yet there's no sin or very few sins that is thoroughly condemned in Scripture as evil speech. And James says, no more. It has no place in the community of faith. And in the two verses that we've got this morning, he gives two reasons. Really, he's given us a third reason. I already mentioned it. We've talked about it in weeks past. That evil speech, sins of the tongue, cause so much damage within the community of faith. Quarreling, fighting, the word murder has been brought up. Envy, jealousy, ambition, selfish ambition. All of those things have split churches, broken churches, damaged churches, damaged the witness of churches. And we know it because many of us have experienced it. Maybe that's how you ended up here. That's why people have left here. 
that, that could be a sermon all into its, in, in and of itself. That, that, that reason why we don't want to participate in evil speech because it destroys the community of faith. But Paul, James gives us two other reasons in our passage. And the first reason is in verse 11. In verse 11, we read, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Don't speak evil against one another. Here's the reason. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. This week, I went down to Buffalo and Rochester, a trip that I have made hundreds of times during my career, and never fails if I cross at Queenston-Lewiston, the same thoughts go through my mind. Because as you pass the Stanley Avenue, the last exit to get into Niagara Falls, you are on a long stretch that takes you to the bridge. And the speed goes from 100 kilometers an hour down to 40 kilometers an hour quite quickly. And every time I'm on that stretch of road, the same thought goes through my mind. This is a ridiculous speed limit. Why do they have a slowing down so early? Is there a policeman that I can see? Because if not, I probably am not going to slow down as quickly as they would like me to slow down. Now, when I speed and break the speed limit, not only am I putting myself at risk of getting a ticket, but what James would say is that when I disregard the speed limit, what I'm doing actually is judging the speed limit. I'm judging the speed limit and concluding that it really doesn't matter. I'm judging the speed limit, and because I am in a rush, and those one or two cars ahead of me, I, and again, I've been doing it for way too many years, this trip, and I got this belief that I know is so silly, that if I can just beat the one or two people that are maybe ahead of me and driving a bit slower to the bridge, that somehow I'm going to get across the bridge a half hour quicker than them, never works. It's never the case. But despite all of that, when I disregard the speed limit, I've judged the speed limit. It doesn't matter. I've judged it and concluded it doesn't pertain to me. And, and probably, if truth be told, the reality is, in my mind, I have determined that the speed limit makes no sense. Like, they should ask me what the speed limit should be, because I would increase it. And so, by disregarding the speed limit and breaking the speed limit, what I've done is I have judged the speed limit because I have concluded that I don't have to obey it because it's silly. It's a dumb law. Right? And if there's some of you here and you're going, boy, I hope Brent doesn't look at me too closely because I am a fellow lawbreaker. I speed myself. You probably are resonating a little bit with what I'm talking about. And that's good because James's point will become much more clear. Because what James wants us to know is that when we participate in evil speech, we make ourselves a lawbreaker. And you might say, well, what law are we talking about? Well, in verse 12, James uses the word neighbor. And that's a clue that James is referring to a law that we've already looked at in chapter 2, verse 8. 
the royal law, the perfect law, the law of the kingdom that, that Jesus laid down, uh, the, the law of love from Leviticus 19. However you want to define it, James is referring to the law that we are to love our neighbor. And specifically here, we are to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when you participate in evil speech, you're breaking the law. And so what James is saying, and this is how it goes, is you speak evil against a fellow brother and sister in Christ. But God said, love your neighbor. But you have concluded that it doesn't really matter what God has said. I'm going to do it anyways. And what James says, you have judged the law by judging your fellow brother and sister. And so just as when I choose to disregard the speed limit, I am judging the law and concluding that it doesn't matter, it doesn't apply to me, and that it's silly and I'm going to do what I think is right. When we speak evil against our fellow brother and sister in Christ, we are judging the law of love And we are concluding and we are showing that we believe that it doesn't matter, it doesn't apply to us, and that we know more than God knows because we're going to do things our own way. And that leads us into James's second reason why we shouldn't participate in evil speech. Because what James wants us to see in verse 12 is this. When we participate in evil speech, not only are we breaking the law, but in verse 12, what James tells us is that we actually put ourselves above not only the law, we put ourselves above the one who gives the law. That we actually usurp God's authority. That we assume the role of God. It was Chuck Swindoll said that when we, when we judge a fellow brother and sister, we are perilously close to assuming the role that only God can assume. Because only God can judge perfectly and accurately the motives uh, and, and behaviors without hypocrisy, without spite, without making any fault. And so James says in verse 12 that if you participate in evil speech, you're playing God. And if you look at the end of verse 12, and I guess it would help if we read verse 12, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. I love how the end of verse 12 goes. And this is James' warning to those who don't heed his prohibition, who listen to these reasons and conclude that it doesn't matter. They're going to do whatever anyways. And James gives a verbal punch of his own at the end of verse 12. He says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? In the original language, it literally means, hey, you, who do you think you are? Who made you God? Who made you God? Which brings a question to my mind. How big is your God? How big is your God? Because if you have a small God, a small concept of God, it's not going to be a big thing for you to 
cross the boundary and, and assume the role that is, is rightly God's? It's not going to really matter if you disregard God's law, you break his commands, that you do things that you know you shouldn't. If your concept of God is small, then you've probably concluded that, that God really doesn't matter. He doesn't really have an impact on our day-to-day life and our day-to-day decisions. But if your understanding of God is that he is a big God, that he is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, that he is the creator of this universe, that he is the giver of life, he is the giver of salvation, that his plans can't be thwarted, if that is our concept of God, that he is big, then we're going to think twice before we judge a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And I used that word judge and I asked Linda to read from Matthew 7 very specifically this morning. Because the passage, especially the part in, in the passage she read where it says, judge lest ye not be judged, is probably one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible. Right? You can't judge. It's wrong to judge. We should never judge lest we be judged. But that, that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. And there are times, and I want that this is another sermon in and of itself, but, but hear me when I say this. There are times when it is appropriate to judge. James wouldn't write his letter if he wasn't judging. Truth must be spoken. Rebukes must be given. Sinful behavior must be confronted. False teachers must be exposed. But this isn't the kind of judging that James is talking about here. It's, it's not the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. The kind of judging that James is referring to here, the kind of judging that James, uh, Jesus condemns in Matthew 7 is a sinful form of judging where we take on the role of God and we judge the motives. We judge the heart of why people do what they do. But we can, we can judge. But we can have a good idea what's behind what people say and, or, or the words that people say and the actions that people do. But we can never f- fully know for sure why. Only God can. Only God can see into the deep recesses of a person's heart. And so that's the judging that Jesus is talking about. That's the judging that James is saying, who do you think you are? That kind of judging is, is for God and God alone. And to help you understand that, I got one last list of what it looks like to judge wrongly. And again, this is one of my favorite preachers, and he put a list together, and he says it much better than I can. And maybe this will help clear up some of the confusion. What judging others wrongly looks like. Criticizing others out of jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition, or some other sin. Assuming to know all the facts and motives. Setting up human standards rather than holding to God's world as God's word as standard. When you don't first judge your own sin before trying to help with others' sin. 
sharing confidential or personal information with wrong intent, maligning someone for a minor infraction or out of a self-righteous attitude, making authoritative pronouncement about another person's eternal destiny. Now look at all those things of what wrongful judging looks like. And I think you can, you can summarize it by saying that the sinful kind of judging is one that damages people. It's just meant to expose with no intent of seeing them change. No, no desire to see them be restored. And James says, when you do that kind of judging, you're assuming the role of God. I've had two weeks to chew on these two verses. It's a lot to think about. I know I've thrown a lot out this morning for you to think about. But as I have thought about it, it kept coming back to a question. What is the cause of the strife and the quarreling, and the fighting, and the disunity, and the disharmony, and the chaos, and the violence that is so prevalent in our world, in our churches, in our families, in our workplaces. What is the cause? Is it not the same thing that has been a temptation and a struggle from the very beginning of human existence in the Garden of Eden. Where humans overstep the boundaries and assume the role of God and push God off the throne and try to live life their own way, causing all sorts of damage along the way. And I think that's what it is. And there's a solution. And you can tell people that you heard it this morning that there is a solution to all the disunity and disharmony and strife and quarreling and everything that's going on in the world. And the solution is found in our passage, I think it was from last week. The solution is to submit yourself to God. To take yourself off the throne and put God back on the throne of your life. Because when God is back on the throne of our life, when we make it our intention and our habit to scour through Scripture so that we regain and we, we build upon this big view and big understanding of God, our desire will be to please Him. We'll think twice before we speak evil against a fellow brother or a fellow sister. We'll think twice before we speak evil against someone that has no faith. Because our desire will be for them to come to faith and be part of our family and be in relationship with this big loving God that we now deeply understand. There's no room in the church for evil speech. And this is as big of a struggle as for me as it probably is for some of you. And I know some of you, like me, are going, okay, what are we going to talk about when we go home after church today? We're going to have to have positive talk. So it's a kick in the rear end for me. Hopefully, for some of you, uh, it's something that you needed to hear as well. I'm going to end it here. I've gone longer than I wanted. And praise team, let's close it off.